Hello, and welcome to You Philosopher. So today I wanted to uh, try to answer a viewer question about uh, a really interesting book called uh, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And so I want to I want to get to try and answer a few questions about it, uh, albeit pretty briefly. I mean, it's a full text to be able to kind of do a, a, a full analysis, you know, in 15 minutes or less um, is pretty tough to do. But I do um, I do think it's really worth talking about. And, and I've mentioned some material that kind of relates to it earlier in the show. And so basically what it comes down to is, is well, Nick, what do you think of this material? Um, what are its uses and what are its um, maybe some possible objections to it? So um, to shooting from the hip, so to speak, I think for me, uh, the way that I really want to talk about it right now is kind of in terms of some stuff that we have going on in the world and look at its application, right? In other words, what is what is the the use of a, of a text like the denial of death? And so uh, in summary, to be exceedingly, if not unfairly brief, um, Becker's book basically suggests that all human action kind of reduces down to an attempt to deny one's own moral mortality, right? Um, so that <laughs> here we are um, basically trying to pretend like we're not going to die. And that that trying to pretend part goes beyond um, uh, just the oh, I, I, I'm going to act like I'm not. It also drives us to do many of the things that we do. So um, we'll look at what some of the arguments are for it and um, maybe you know some possible objections to it briefly, but what do I mean in terms of what it drives us to do? That in other words, if we don't really entirely uh, have the ability to accept our deaths, and there's, I mean, there's a lot to be said. I mean, I would be glad to talk about it in terms of whether or not we're even kind of linguistically capable of recognizing death, right? In other words, to say, I will die seems to require that I have the ability to both be an I and be dead at the same time, which by definition is impossible, right? I, an existing thing, cannot actually be dead. I can be, you know, silent, <laughs> but um, and that seems like a little bit of a linguistic word game. And what I mean is, is if death isn't anything else, if it's not more life, so to speak, because if you think about, you know, the afterlife, well, we don't really mean being truly ceasing to exist in the afterlife. What we mean is to cease entirely um, if, if by death, right? Um, but most of the time when people are talking about death, what they mean is, is they're, we're actually going somewhere else. So, so that's life after life. Right? There's more life, maybe of just a different kind. But what if there's nothing at all? And that, that's more of a complicated issue because can we even imagine what it's like to be in nothing? And that seems to be like definitionally impossible. Like as soon as I'm doing imagining, I'm imagining. And thusly, I, I can't be nothing. Right. So anyways, if everything I just said seemed remarkably silly, I'll be glad to do an episode and try and like tease out the language of it. It's pretty fascinating. But that being said, um, Becker's work suggests that everything that we do is actually an attempt to kind of deny that mortality, which is just just too kind of terrifying to deal with in some sense. And so like the reason why I'm doing these shows is so that something will live on past me and therefore I kind of have a certain kind of immortality. Or if I write a book, right, or the act of sex, right, is um, 
an, an attempt to bring more agents like myself into the world, and that, therefore my genetics kind of ends up being passed on. And so you realize we do two things. We either distract ourselves from our mortality, just straight up distract, like I don't want to have to think about it. So we go and purchase entertainment, or we read books, or we watch movies, or we engage in sexuality, or whatever things that people do to distract themselves from their death. And then we attempt to somehow mitigate our deaths and make them not as bad by like recognizing notions of the afterlife or um, writing books or, you know, kind of Henry David throwing it and living on through flowers or whatever. And so um, the denial of death, the text seems to suggest that no um, human action isn't really more than this drive to ignore our deaths and do something to mitigate, you know, kind of undo it, whether, you know, if I have my name on a building or if I have my name on a book or something like that. Well, what's its relevance now in terms of its usage? Because that's kind of a little bit of where I'd like to start and I'll try and move through it quickly. But if you look at kind of what's happening in the world right now, right, so there's this issue of sending immigrants back and not letting them in. You know, um, Betsy DeVos is likely to be appointed secretary of education. In other words, we're talking about privatizing education, right? Stuff like that. And so I've had some interesting conversations uh, as of late about some of these issues and I was talking to a very accomplished um, lawyer just the other day. And he was talking about how he would really like to see more of the government run like a business. And that seems to be, you know, you hear people say that, like the country's a business and we need to run the country like a business. And I was pointing out, um, but business often does things really poorly, right? Like we have this weird delusion, I think largely sold to us by business, that everything that business does is just so much more efficient because it's like, you know, it's cutthroat. And um, so if that, let's say that's true. Uh, if that part of the reason why business does well is because it's competitive and cutthroat, that's why it also kind of sucks at mo uh, morality. <laughs> right? Like if, if business is inherently cutthroat, and I don't think it is, but if that's the argument that people are going to make, that it's kind of essentially cutthroat, um, then yeah, it's going to kind of naturally suck at morality and it's going to always be trying to cut costs, even at the expense of doing things in like in a more robust or more moral way. Like let's take education, for instance. If the idea is to privatize education, well then don't we have to worry about, we already have to worry about being immoral in education in the public sector, which is supposed to be like serving people. The whole idea is servantship and politicians making sure that funding goes to serve people. But if it's now like companies that are like vying to make money and they are benefited by producing people who don't ask questions about the value of their corporate interests and so on and so forth, don't we have to worry about that? I mean, we already have to worry about the government producing people who come out of their education, not questioning the government, right? So, uh, you know, I, you know, I make points like, you know, the the Ford Pinto, for instance, right? So Ford famously put out a car that they knew would kill people <laughs> because they were about to go out of business. And if they didn't put that particular car out with the defective bumper, um, they would, uh, they'd go out of business. So uh, the problem is that it, it costs very little, something like $11 per bumper to fix, which is still a lot of money when you're dealing with a lot of cars, fair enough. But they did a cost benefit analysis and they looked at it and they said, okay, well, we can fix the cars, uh, which costs us this amount of money, or we could pay for the lawsuits of the people who, the family members who lose a member of their family, which is, which is more. Well, it turns out that knowing that people would die and paying for the lawsuits, um, you know, 
paying the families for their dead loved ones. They, they, they figured out that that would likely be cheaper than to fix the cars. So they put the cars out anyways. Uh, you know, we have stuff like that happen with regularity. I, what was it? I think GM recently, um, you know, had this issue with uh, ignitions, um, and they, they, they knew about it. Right. Um, so, uh, Volkswagen had problems like this too, where they, they know that there's a problem and they kind of sweep it under the rug. Um, and kind of comically so, where like you can go to their website. I always like to do that, like pull up and like look at the website's like, we're about people, we're about you. And you're like, but you've known for the last 20 years that there's an ignition problem that kills people, but you're about me, right? And this isn't to say that there aren't companies that act really ethically. There are some that act really ethically sometimes, and it comes at a significant cost uh, to them financially, and they're willing to do it anyways. Um, and they tend to respond to us in that regard and, and our demands from them, right? Our, you know, we kind of vote with our dollars, so to speak. And if we um, continue to pay them to be ethical and reward them for that, that's, then they flourish. But this is all to say there, by my lights, there are excellent reasons to kind of look at these things and go, well, wait a minute, you know, um, some things aren't done necessarily governmentally nearly as badly as people like to say, like I, the post office, post office, uh, is it's, you think about it, like, well, you know, we should, we need to privatize this, get rid of the, you know, this is costing taxpayer dollars. You know, we've got UPS and FedEx. Why do we need the post office? What do they do? Well, I mean, they do something like kind of magical, right? <laughs> I mean, I go, I, I take like 40 cents and, you know, buy a stamp and I, and, put whatever I want in an envelope, you know, I put my letter in, as long as it's not too heavy, right? I put, all right, so I put my piece of paper in an envelope and I put it outside and then this person comes by and picks it up and magically, like within a week or less, my letter appears anywhere around the world. Um, that's impressive, like that's pretty laudable, like like regardless of the weather. Um, and I'll point that out and people will be like, well, that's, but we don't even use it. But like my business uses UPS because the post office can't be relied upon. Like, well, I mean, we have underfunded them to the greatest possible degree. I mean, and, and, and these guys are being like tormented trying to get this done as quickly as possible for us. And the fact of the matter is, is they do a really impressive job. You know, the women and men who, who do this are being timed like all the time. And they have to move it as quickly, like, like how long it takes them for them to get out of their truck and back. Uh, you know, it's a matter of seconds. So it is impressive, though, how efficiently it's done, given the amount of money that's involved with it. And the fair number of people are pretty critical if I say that. I mean, to me, it's just like, <laughs> I can just put my letter outside my house. And then the same person, right, will come by the next day just to check to see if I've left another one. Um, just in case, right? Um, and that, to me, seems pretty impressive. So some stuff in terms of being governmentally run, run works pretty well. And I look at things in terms of, um, uh, you know, this immigration issue. Well, uh, are we in fact going to make more terrorists by being even harder on people? Um, some eight children I'm, I, I've been made to understand were killed today. We lost a, uh, uh, a soldier, which is very tragic and something like 30, um, Yemeni, civilians were killed today in a strike to, to fight terrorism. And, I, and, you know, you have to worry, like, is that, what ways it's, uh, is it going to help, but what ways might it also hurt, right? Um, 
if we ban people from immigrating, if we don't let refugees in, does that promote other people's violent causes? And so when I was talking with this uh, lawyer about it, well, he was saying, well, Nick, you, you know, we need people like you. You know, we need naive people like you, Nicholas, to, um, <laughs> to kind of have this faith that things can be done well and that people are going to be moral about it. But what you really need is this dog-eat-dog -dog cutthroat reality. That's, you know, that's, that's what happens in real life. I mean, we've got to stop the terrorist, and if that means we have to get rid of all of them, so be it. It seems to be the mindset, um, you know, uh, and if we have, and, and he was arguing particularly in terms of, of corporation, you know, if you don't have that kind of, kind of cutthroat mentality, things aren't going to be as efficient. And so you need that push. You need that, um, you need that, that kind of corporate and business mindset to make things awesome. And you know, in, in essence, Nicholas, while you're worrying about everyone giving each other hugs, you know, business has got to be done and, and the country's got to be protected. Perhaps that's true. I have to admit, though, it's very strange to me to be called an idealist. Naive, I'll take. <laughs> but idealist, uh, that I don't hear that much. And, and the reason why I think I'm not particularly idealist is, is because in many ways, um, the book, The Denial of Death, I think rings very true. By that, what I mean is, I know we're all, in fact, going to die, right? I mean, I know that as much as I can know anything, which as a philosopher isn't, actually doesn't get me as much traction. <laughs> but uh, I know I'm going to die. I know that. I know that as a matter of fact, again, as much as I can know anything. And that's an inevitability about my own life. And so what I mean to say is, is that for me, the fundamental question isn't, um, isn't going to be, uh, how do I prevent my death? It's who am I before I die? Can I answer to myself? Can I answer to uh, my God or gods if I believe in them? Can I answer to the other people I know and respect before I die? And um, in other words, it's funny that we look at these things like where I think, honestly, in other words, that idea of, well, let's be as hard on everyone as we can because that's business or we need things to be like cutthroat because that makes for better business. I think that actually denies our deaths because it, it seems to suggest that we'll kind of live on, that we don't really have to live with ourselves, so to speak, and this is really the only way to do it. Um, as if we'll always kind of get to look back and make up for the unethical actions that we take. For me, I look at it and I look at something like education and whether or not I privatize it. And I think, well, how are every how is every individual student going to be affected by that? And that I don't think is naive. That is the constant pressure that I feel knowing that my imminent demise is going to come my way. And so how do I make sure that I've done the very best that I can and that nothing can fall through the cracks? So, um, you know, there clearly are some objections to this, like, Nick, how do you actually know, like, aren't you kind of assuming there isn't an afterlife that in some sense is more important? And so uh, how, do you, how do you not, um, can you really reduce everything we're doing down to, um, death. And I think, not necessarily. I mean, you don't get all all the time. Uh, and 
the the realization that there really might be something more. We may not be telling ourselves a story when it comes to the afterlife. There really, in fact, might actually be uh, more out there than we realize, um, though not necessarily better, <laughs> right? So, well, what's the point? The point is is only this. Of course, there's there's criticisms to this. I don't think those criticisms, though, um, take away Becker's main thesis, even if Becker allows for the possibility that there is some life after death. I think the, the, the major mistake that we make in our own thinking is that we kind of let the possibility of there being a life after death seem to dissuade us from taking this life really, really, really seriously. That's the main kind of tragedy. It's like, It's kind of like people ramming planes into buildings and you're like, wow, they must really believe that there is something better out there for them, else they wouldn't have been willing to do it in the first place. Um, and that is really deeply problematic. That assumption is one that I think requires not being as self-reflective as we probably all really need to be. In other words, we tend to make the assumption, not just that there is an afterlife, but that we know what we have to do to get to the good part of it, so to speak. And that we're really confident in like, oh, well, all I have to do is this. And I think we become morally lazy, to be honest, that um, we have this idea that there is, if there is a God, it seems like we don't really think that the demands are particularly high. Like, well, no, you know, the God or the gods will forgive me as long as I tried my best. <laughs> like, okay, I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but trying our best has turned out pretty poorly worldwide. I mean, there's a lot of war. There's a lot of needless death. A lot of us are buying shoes made by little children in sweatshops. We've got little kids in cages picking our chocolate for us, right? Um, we're lying and cheating and stealing. We're engaging in really unethical business practices, right? We're not, I mean, how many of us are really giving the best of the best of the best that we can? And it's strange because to me, the comedy of it ends up being the realization that uh, the few people who kind of don't seem to really believe in a God notion, don't seem to feel like an intense pressure to like do everything good right now because this is all you have. And those of us, right, those people who do believe in a God notion don't seem to be freaking out like, oh my goodness, there is a God. The God's basically only asking me to like not kill people and be as loving as possible. And I'm failing at that all the time. Like we seem to be pretty cavalier about it. Like, well, you know, if you gotta, you gotta break a few eggs, you know, if to, you know, <laughs> like, like what if we have to actually answer for everything that we're doing? And so I guess I feel kind of, darned if I do, darned if I don't, so to speak, right? That if there's nothing, have I really made my life worthwhile? <laughs> and, and if there is something, have I really done everything I can to be that good and worthy person? And the, and the, and the answer to, to either is like, no. And so there's this like tension. And I think, I think Becker would probably say, well, Nick, you're just trying to deny your death, right? <laughs> like you're trying, to, you're trying to make your life worthwhile uh, before you go. And I, I guess um, Becker would probably be be right about that. Um, and that ends up being important, though. Philosophy struggles and struggles right now with the fact that it doesn't really reach out to people. It just ends up being like this thing out there that, oh, look what we can do, logic, and we can talk about really complex things and use words like epistemology. 
But what's the practical value? And I'm not saying the practical value is more important. What I'm saying is, is philosophy tends to be a dying field because we can't answer to the rest of the population why it matters. Um, and I think that in this particular case, the practical really does matter. We do struggle with um, morality. I struggle with morality. That much seems clear. What I mean is, is the vast majority of us think there's just a few simple rules. And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, really struggle with following them. And Becker's question to me is more important than the theoretical, like, oh, look, you can explain human action. There's also this concern of, have we let ourselves become lazy because we've denied our deaths? Have we let ourselves not really have to work as hard to be the people we believe we're supposed to be? Because we're like, ah, I always have tomorrow to be a better person. And so that fundamental question is, is if you don't have until tomorrow to be a good person, what good would you in fact do today? Even if it doesn't get you anywhere else, even if it doesn't bring you into an afterlife, are, are, am I the person that I think that I should be? So um, with that, I think that naivety kind of goes by the wayside. And the tremendous pressure to each as individuals be the best people we can becomes very, very, very intense. So I would probably say to Mr. Becker, I think it's more than just a fear of death then. I think it's a fear of guilt that drives us. And we're so afraid of other people calling us guilty um, or not being the people that we think we're supposed to be, that we treat ourselves like we always have more time, that there's always to ways to make it right afterwards. And we find ways to make it so that the things that we're doing aren't as bad as they seem. So um, with that, I leave you and uh, I hope you have a wonderful week.